Hello, my name's Hayden Prowse and welcome to the Malevich podcast where we mix up arts and culture with science, history, literature and lots of other delicious ingredients for an intellectually irresistible discussion. In today's episode, we're talking about the power of sound. So, welcome everybody. Very exciting today. We have Tony Cokes, professor at Brown University and acclaimed audio visual artist who's currently got an exhibition at Goldsmith, which I, I, I saw the other day. Enjoyed it very much, Tony. It was great. Very, Thank you. Very moving. We don't want to talk too much now yeah. doing the intros, but I sort of saw it as a sort of experiential long read. It was sort of like walking into a really, really good article that you really, really enjoyed with the sort of all the sort of audio, you know, accoutrements to that and amazing soundtracks. It was, I found it very moving. We also have Jen Nikuru here, who I saw your piece at um, 180 The Strand recently about the uh, Detroit techno scene which was very good it was, it was sort of like a, it was sort of like an Adam Curtis music video it was like if Adam Curtis had decided to make a sort of a music video about the Detroit hip hop or techno scene that, that's what it would have been does that make sense? Kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bear, bear in mind I'm not from the art community or world so it's useful for you guys are going to have to explain a lot of your processes and a lot of what, what it is you do and that's kind of the point as well because I guess I'm sort of very much an, an everyman so tr- mm. treat me as, as a moron um, <laughs> but seriously Jen's a very talented artist and director who's made some brilliant multi-award winning films such as her documentary Rebirth is Necessary and she was also one of the directors on the brilliant apeshit music video which I love with Beyonce and Jay-Z and then also we have Trevor Cox author of Now You're Talking uh, which traces the history of speech from the Neanderthal to artificial intelligence and also a professor at Salford University professor of acoustic engineering you have a PhD in physics and a PhD in acoustics is that right? No I only have one doing uh, one PhD is enough yeah, yeah. only one PhD yeah, I've got a PhD in acoustics okay we'll just call you wizard of sound for now if you can, that sort of invokes a sort of 1970s glam rock band. <laughs> thing of it. Anyway. Wizard of sound. Wizards of sound. In the studio with... <laughs> with the wizards of sound. <laughs> so welcome, everybody. And yeah, I guess today we're sort of talking about sound and music within the artistic sphere, because both you, Jen, and you, Tony, work very closely with sound in your artistic practice. And just to sort of, and particularly with reference to sort of the experience of of black people and blackness in modern Western culture, that's a big theme in both of your work. Tony, your piece Testament A I found particularly moving. It used as a text uh, from a memorial talk, I believe, given at Goldsmiths in 2018 by the writer and artist Kodwo Eshun, one year after the untimely death of his friend and colleague, the cultural theorist Mark Fisher. To explain yep. to the audience, you sort of walk into this very dark room and there's right. a projection of Kodjo's speech on the screen, which you've put to text. There's a track behind which which sort of feels like spoken word almost, even though yeah. it's, not, it's sort of very in time to the music. What's the relationship between the text and the, and the music? There's no kind of absolute or direct like narrative relation. However, in a way, the music mix was in some ways meant to be a reflection on Fisher and his work. So, and it's it's kind of interesting. I can't relocate the source of that mix. I know some of the individual components and some of the individual tracks. So it's your track. Well, it isn't. That's right. that's the thing. It's like it's something I found, uh, and now I'm trying to retrace how I found it. Right. And it's like, well, I know what some of these tracks are. Burial is kind of an important artist in that you know mix and sequence, but it was like. 
I can't find who actually authored this. Maybe that says some things about my process, too. You know, it's sort of like the found and the authored kind of mm. go back and forth. It's super interesting because there are so many connections there to your film, Black to Techno, which is beautif- beautifully describes the sort of genesis of techno in Detroit and the relation to the big car manufacturing plants there and people's feelings of sort of Marxist alienation from the process of, or from the, 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 the sort of, you know, the end products that they were creating mm. and the kind of mechanised nature of the of the factory floors they were working in and how that translated to the music that was that was created there. Yeah, I think particularly in my piece Black to Techno, I was I really wanted to it, it's multi-layered in many ways, but one of the kind of layers is looking at the relationship of black people and labour in the Americas through time. So, for example, even with the film, in terms of opening up into the conversation around techno in Detroit specifically, we open up with images of men, women and children as sharecroppers. And something that I'm doing within the edit also is in terms of when you see these individuals, you know, in the field working, there's a patterning and there's a rhythm to mm-hmm. how they're working as well. Their movement. To the movement, exactly. Yeah. And even, you know, one of the kind of aspects of that conversation that didn't make it into the film, because I couldn't clear the archive, essentially, was um, around looking at chain gangs. Mm. How, you know, if you look at chain gangs as, as a method of maintaining a steady rhythm, people are literally working to sound or mm. working to music, to music that they, they create. And so you essentially kind of open the film like that and then you're transported into an actual car plant in Detroit mm. in the 1950s and 60s and you see black men and women working on the plant floor and making work in rhythm. That's kind of, you know, creating that sense of uh, linking to the legacy of labour and black people and black bodies in America. And someone who who features in the film as one of the voices in the film and has written quite, quite in depth around this topic also is a friend of mine by the name of Beth Coleman. Oh, yeah. um, and Beth has written quite depthfully, I can say, on that topic. Mm. Trevor, it does seem like there is a sort of direct relation between the music that came out of Detroit at that time and, and the, the city itself. Is the music we create always a direct reflection of the societies and, and cultures and, and cities and that we live in? Is that something that we can say? Oh, I think that's a really big question. Mm. I think you could probably say it probably depends on which city you pick and which cultures, how, mm. how it bring, brings it together. But certainly rhythm is pretty fundamental to music and we're, we're rhythmic animals. It, you know, you start listening actually when you're in the womb, in the third trimester, you've already, your hearing's working. And, and what are you listening to? Your mother's heartbeat, her rhythmic breathing. I mean, some sloshing sounds and other things mm. going on as well. Okay. Um, but basically we're hearing rhythm from our very earliest days of, of actual listening. And of course, one of the first things we do when we're born is we learn speech. And particularly English is a very rhythmic language. You know, there's very rhythmic elements you've got to learn. So our first early learnings of speech are around, okay, things come in phrases, there's things Mm. come in words. So there's these punctuation points. And so it's not not surprising that rhythm plays a real central role to music because it also plays a central role in speech. I mean, Mm. which came first, our rhythm in music or rhythm in speech? That's an Mm. interesting question. But from an individual point of view, probably comes the rhythm, probably comes from speech to begin with. Mm. 
It's interesting you made that connection to plantation music and and music that came out of the sort of shop floors of of large industrial factories. Yeah, even when I was writing about the film, I very much described techno as what I call a resulting sound. So even when you're thinking about music as it pertains to how is it linked into into society or linked into cultures, I described techno as a resulting sound because my belief is that this is the only environment where this sound in this structure in this way could have come out of. Mm. So, you know, I I link the sound to Detroit being the Fordist kind of heartland of America. Like, there's a reason why if you look at the rhythm, the cadence of that sound, there is a link, sometimes more overtly than, than not, but there's a link into the rhythm and the movement of being in a car plant. And that's even something on a on a level of um, gathering actual like wild sound or like field recordings that I did. So when I went to Detroit, I went into a couple of car plants and I went with a sound recordist and we just recorded mm. the sound. Um, and so what we ended up doing in the film is where you hear certain people speaking, you also hear that sound we just found mm. in the space kind of like rhythmically uh, or you know over certain sections so I described techno as a resulting sound in a sense of like it's by virtue of its legacy it's by virtue of its history it's by virtue of the politics at the time it's by virtue of uh, the economy of the time it's by virtue of the people who who were in this space at the time why you have a sound like that and if any of those elements were omitted from that legacy or from that space the sound would be different mm. so I, I describe it as a as a resulting sound mm. Why do you think, you know, people think of art as, as more of a sort of visual medium, but you two are very much focused on, on sound. Why is that? And why is there not more sound as a, a key feature of, of uh, contemporary art? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think sound is often constitutive of what we, or what possibilities there might be for meaning. Maybe there's a certain type of visual presentist evidentiary sort of mo- notion and modality that informs a lot of visual you know, phenomena, art, um, and, and culture maybe more generally. But for me, it's I, I think there is something really basic about sound. I think it refers to things like process and labor, which Jim was talking about. Um, I think it's also a kind of carrier of traces of specific... Um, historical and cultural moments. And it can articulate very, very deeply and at the level of the body as opposed mm. to mental cognition. You have to invest time in the sonic world, don't right. you? I mean, the thing about, I can, you know, I could go to the National Gallery down the road in a moment and I can look at a picture and I can quickly go, do I like this? Don't I like this? Do I want to invest time? Whereas to actually listen to one of Jen's or, or Tony's pieces, I have to invest time to get anything out of it. So it's a very different, it, it, especially in the modern world where it's instant sort of gratification kind of, you know, let's share something on social media. To actually take a sound piece on social media and listen to it takes time. I don't know because sound, that music that you particularly enjoy and that moves you, moves you immediately and you know from the moment you hear it that it's changed, something's changed within you. Absolutely. In a way, you know, you can go to Florence and see all the Renaissance art you like and, and appreciate it, but it doesn't hit you in the way that music... Really. On a guttural level, isn't yeah. it? Like even, I think for me, I always mention with my work that sound is as important as the visual. So mm. if you remove 
sound, you end up with a different visual story. And I've always had this fascination about how we trust the visual over how we trust mm, sound right. even if you have a conversation with someone if you basically what I'm speaking to is the scene versus the herd right so mm. if I said to someone I saw something they're more likely to believe that this thing exists as opposed to if I said I heard that yeah, I overheard you know? mm, yeah. so that that exactly that becomes really interesting what point does uh, music appear in the history of culture is it pre-art? I don't is it know. post-art? That's a, oh, that's a good question. I think, well, the oldest Probably. musical instruments we know about are about 40,000, 50,000 years old. Wow. So, so they've got, you know, bits of bone. Slightly before the oldest art. Yeah. Mm. 35, 40, right? Um, on the same kind of order of magnitude. No, the oldest art now is about 65,000. Oh, really? Okay years ago so we're talking yeah we're talking about the same sort of kind of era mm. where I mean it's basically where there's arche- archaeological record exactly. because right. the problem is and questions I- of records and recording oh, exactly. are, are constitutive of, of that you know I was thinking you know about like sounds in the body or sounds as part of social exchanges or part of ritual the oldest instance we have got evidence for are actual bones which have been made into kind of flutes so you can actually wow. see they've drilled holes into them and they blow down and they've made replicas that can play Mm. but of course we probably made music before those those are physical (laughs) things because we probably sung they might have have had wooden violins that decomposed Uh, I doubt they had wooden violins but certainly (laughs) certainly, you know they would have used their voice and if we think that Mm. you know music predated speech now we don't know that then you might be going back half a million years ago to when music may have started when we start you know that's Mm. roughly very crudely maybe a start date Mm -hmm. for speech Mm. I mean, certainly, if you, I mean, if you go to find chimpanzees, mm. they have calls. Now, calls are not the same as singing, but they're not so far away. Absolutely. We branched off from chimpanzees six, seven million years ago. So somewhere in that kind of timescale, we're talking about singing evolving, whether it's, you know, several million years, maybe half a million years ago, maybe 100,000 mm. years ago. But So we're talking a long time ago, whenever you want to date it. You can find old rock gongs where, you know, these rock, if you, most rocks don't make a very satisfying sound, but find the right one and mm. a nice sort of ding. And they can find ones, and they can find ones in caves, which are obviously very old because you can see the marks where they've hit them. And then it's, you know, over time, you know, calcified over again. So they can sort of mm. t- say it's you know, 10, 20, 30,000 years ago. So wow. we, know, we know there's a lot of ancient instruments out there. Let's talk about power quickly because it's a major theme in a lot of your work and you've done some really interesting work around uh, the use of music and torture in places like Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. Um, what's the what's the relationship between between sound and music and power and how can music be used for bad as well as good? Well, you know, I think we've outlined in a maybe general sense the, the ubiquity and the distribution, you know, can be both an opportunity, you could say, knowledge producing and also a problematic. It could be part of a kind of, you could say, system of oppression or regulation even in trying to, some have said that the orchestra is kind of based on a model, not unlike the factory in a certain way, where activities are subdivided and hyper-specialized, where there is a conductor who seeks to, again, produce a kind of, you could say, polity, a kind of sense of knowledge based on like something written and and the sort of adequate and regulated translation of a you know written code so evil 16 is your piece yeah yeah relates, does this relate to playing britney spears uh, at very high decibels to detainees it, it could do right. yeah so it britney could, spears means so, something different to a guantanamo Bay detainee than it would to us that's right, right. and and that idea that 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 sort of differential 
can be a kind of, you could say, imperial or political force. Mm. You know, it's sort of like, I'm going to subject you to something. Yeah. And it even becomes more complex, something that maybe I under, or I think I understand mm. um, or, or that is pleasurable for mm. me, but unknown to you. And that's, that's really, yeah. But, I, you know, I, I would also say that it is the conditions like the volume that are a kind sure. of important constituent. Being in Guantanamo Bay is quite an important uh, condition to factor in, yeah. in that scenario. It, it's like <laughs> the conditions are are important. It is actually the stress positions, mm. the beatings, the volume, the other forms of sensory deprivation. Sure. I'm sure if we were all in stress positions when we had to listen to Britney Spears, you wouldn't have had nearly so many number ones. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But part of it is kind of about control, and, right. and even on a really superficial and uh, level, if you if you look at environmental noise, you know the problems of na- neighbourhood noise, which is mm-hmm. obviously nowhere near as, as right. serious <laughs> as what we're talking about in Guantanamo Bay. If you actually measure people's responses to the neighbour's dog, mm-hmm. if they have no control over it, it's much right. worse. And so the thing exactly. in Guantanamo Bay is exactly. you don't have the control. Lack of control. You, you haven't got the volume control. You can't turn it down. Mm-hmm. You know it's going to keep going. You've you got don't no way know what the duration it. is likely to be mm-hmm. or when it will end. Mm-hmm. All of those are, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I guess it, there, there would be things which would be more unpleasant to listen to. I, I think it's the control which you're really playing with. And I guess mm-hmm. in this case, it's playing, here is this great American artist. Yes. We're American. Yeah. We're going so you know. I remember back to Noriega. It was Bruce Springsteen they were playing at Noriega, and it's probably more powerful than even playing unpleasant sounds. I would imagine. Mm. It was back Mm. in the eighties, wasn't it? He was holed up in the embassy, and the Americans wanted to get him out, so they played "Born in the USA" out of giant loudspeakers. (laughs) If I remember the story correctly, yeah, I think there may have been a playlist. Here we get into another area. Um, I believe what was it? Um, A Motown track, "Nowhere to Run." Uh, <laughs> nowhere to hide was also wow. part of the playlist. No way. Something that's also interesting to me as well is who is given the task or the job or the role of selecting these sounds mm-hmm. and how do they come <laughs> to the decision yeah. of yeah. how do they curate the, what, this torture what playlist? What the process yeah, is. Who's yeah. the DJ? Who's the DJ? Who's the DJ? <laughs> is it Diplo? It's, it's, <laughs> no. <laughs> Secretly working. Secretly working for the, yeah, <laughs> the be? CIA and the, um, yeah. I'm interested in what you said, Jen, because, OK, talking about sort of the use of, of music, um, you know, for the purposes of power. But, yeah, um, black empowerment, music is a key aspect mm. of black empowerment to the, to the extent that, you know, black music is now the sort of is modern popular music. Most modern mm. popular music mm-hmm. that we listen to comes from black mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. And it's a key aspect of black um, empowerment in Western societies. Mm-hmm. And it's a key part of that story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, even just, you know, historically uh, within uh, black cultures and also just within, I, which the term I prefer to use is cultures of uh, people of a global majority. You know, when we're looking for, or when we're in the pursuit of freedom, music is always typically used to unify people. Mm. You know, it's used as an incubator of expression it's used as an incubator of expression for those maybe for example they say you know like if people don't want to read sometimes if you put it in a in a track you know mm. maybe they'll receive it that way it's a it's kind of a gateway it's a to, gateway to exactly a kind of knowledge and productivity i wanted to talk quickly about your morrissey piece in in gold oh, yeah. which is really funny and great and what's the because as soon as i started read it's a letter written to morrissey yeah, it's recently. in in a in I, a kind of publication context i think it was written by a, a person named joshua surtees okay and it was published in The Guardian. I right. believe he's a journalist. 
Um, I'm not that familiar with his other work. I just, you know, saw this text and was drawn to it on mm. a certain level because it articulates um, so some pleading text. Yeah, trying to and and also kind of why have you become this? Yeah, why have you become middle aged kind of moron? Monster? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think it's also interesting, you know, in a kind of self reflexive way that's not totally distant from some of Morrissey's own you know, writing and performative techniques, where he kind of draws our attention to kind of the functions of language and how it positions our identities as subjects and our desires. And so it was kind of an interesting, an interesting text to look at. Yeah, it is written in a kind of almost uh, parody or simulation mm. of some of the things that Morrissey does. It's sort of like a fan letter but also in the kind of form of, you know, the person who whose work they admire yeah. to critique them. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like a reading. You know, you know? Morrissey immediately as you, as you walk in. I guess mm. it's a sort of national tragedy, isn't it? The it Mor- is. The Morrissey is. For, <laughs> it, well, for music fans, for at music. least. Yeah. Which, you know, I count myself as one. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you a Morrissey fan, Joe? Uh, not greatly. My family. <laughs> no, no I, I'd listen to it. I mean, if it coming from Manchester, I go. I have. To. But my. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But my. Yeah, my family are really into it. You know, especially my wife. He was up in Manchester at the time. He was really big. And yeah. to have this happen now, do you wipe all that music and yeah. pretend it wasn't there, or do you still listen to it? And there's a, there's other artists you could yeah, name the same, same thing. Yeah, many artists. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Even for me, there are certain artists who, by virtue of having more sense of the context around their lives when they were mm. creating these sounds that are outside of the music themselves I now have a different listening relationship when I hear those music there's a purity for me you're saying you don't listen to Michael Jackson anymore as well. not necessarily <laughs> but there's a purity well, I, you know, that I doesn't think exist mm. you know, including even for Morrissey as well there was a yeah. you know Mm. I mean, I, I think that is a very salient question. Is it yeah. possible to listen to music kind of in complete isolation from yeah. these other factors? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. one of those factors which plays on this uh, is if you if that was the music you listened to in your teenage, it's the sound of you going into an adult. Exactly. Yeah, and music is, you this know, is we, it's a learned response. Mm-hmm. You know, if you spent a lot of time listening to Michael Jackson or if you spent a lot of time listening to, I don't know, Baroque classical, mm. you know, that would be your music of your teenage life. Who <laughs> uh, listened to Baroque classical well, I was in their teens? I, I was just trying to think something very contrasting. Okay. Maybe I went too yeah. far. <laughs> but, you know, if that was, if Free maybe, jazz. Maybe, well, <laughs> maybe back in the yeah. 16th century, you were a rebel if you listened to Bach. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, you, maybe Mom, not, I want to listen to Bach. Yeah, yeah. close the door. No, no, no yeah. go, yeah. go and do Bark. some Gregorian chanting. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so anyway, but you've got these very contrasting, and and what, which one you listen to is almost like happen chance of when you went through your childhood, yeah. and what mm-hmm. your peer group was, yeah. right. and what was in the charts, and whether you want to be the person who listens to the charts or the person, or person who's who doesn't, being, who yeah. doesn't, yeah, and then you and then you get into adulthood and suddenly what you were listening to becomes persona non grata Mm. for some reason and it's not in your control but it's really part of your soul Mm. and that's Mm. where I think we run into real difficulties because you feel it's part of you at that point because you've gone through you know maybe the music you were hearing when you had your first relationship and all those kind of things it's so so poignant I always thought I'm 38 now and I always thought I would always get 
music, like whatever the new music was that young mm -hmm. people were making, mm -hmm. I would always get it. And now I listen to trap music and I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? This is not good. Why, mm. why are you? I can't. Is that just because I'm old or is that? <laughs> That's a, do I would I have had to listen to that at twelve and thirteen, fourteen years old in order to enjoy it? I, I, I think if you mm. listen to it probably often enough with an open enough mind, you probably would get there. Yeah. But I think the thing is, is mm. that the things we hatch onto and we memorise most are things that happen at most emotional times. The yes. memories which are most strong are the ones that oh. are associated with really strong, you know, feelings. I mean, they find yeah. this with even simple things like earworms. You know those tunes that mm. get stuck in your head? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The ones that tend to get stuck more often are, you know, there's various reasons, but one of them is, did you hear it at the time, I don't know, you were studying for your exams yeah. and you heard this tune, oh. and therefore it's got this emotional valence yes. to it which means it's much more likely to be recalled. Mm. So as a teenager, your emotions are all over the place. So it's much more likely you would have heard something at a point at the moment of your first kiss or the moment your mm. first girlfriend or boyfriend told you to sod off or whatever, you know. Yeah. You know it's much more likely to have happened at something very crucial. Yeah. And therefore, your brain recalls it because it's being fused in your mind as being really important to you. Whereas mm. now, now, maybe... I'm an old emotionless husk. Yeah. Maybe you just don't have the... the, the like, you just, you're not having... Those songs are not tied to a very particular... Particular mm. transformative experience. Yeah. yeah, I think that is what it is. Yeah, I have no and, connection yeah, to it. Yeah, I mean, part of it also, I think, peer groups and, and socialization and context. I think as you change your life, your maybe ability to incorporate new music forms may shift yeah. just as well. I know I went through a period, say, in my 30s, where I was listening to less music. You know, I was doing less other new music, less new music. Yeah. And, and just that was kind of um, what was happening at the time. You know, I was doing other things. The brain um, becomes sort of ossified and yeah, calcified and, and knows what it likes and doesn't. And want yeah. To and, and or, you know, it's like I'm, I'm not running with the same crew. And so yeah. it's almost as though, you know, I'm spending more time, say, in my relationship with my wife than I am yeah. in socializing and going to clubs. And so those can actually have, I think, pretty transformative effects. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like it requires a desire to return to popular forms of music and a kind of reacquainting oneself. That's kind of what happened to me, actually, in a kind of personal sense. I, I decided that since music had been such an important element in my practice, yeah. that I should do some pieces about popular music and my relationship to it. And it, it sort of reinvigorated my relationship with popular music. But you're also not seeking an identity at the moment, are mm. you? Yeah, in, right. In the way that as a teenager you mm. are. And of, and of course the thing about sound is it's it's really tied to your identity, whether that's the music you listen to or the yeah. voice that you use. Yeah. And uh -huh. in teenage life, an early life, you're trying to say, who am I? What am yeah. I? What's, what's this yeah. image I'm projecting? Yeah. And, 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 and but, part of that is the sound registers that you are, li yeah, yeah, that you have access to. And you may want to even shift those or strongly identify with those to give oneself some coherence almost. Absolutely. I remember yeah. when I was like a teenager, I'd know who would be my friends based on what they were listening to. And if you're listening to that, you're not I'm my like, friend. I was, I was just like, okay, we're going to vibe. And if you're yeah. not listening to that, the likelihood is we're not going to vibe. You know, it's, yeah. because it's tied into, as we kind of like have been yeah. mentioning, is because it's it's not in isolation of itself. It's tied into so many other interests. Okay, if he or she's into this, the likelihood is they're into that and they're into that and they're into that. That's kind of like, you know. It becomes part of your communal identity. Yeah, and in your formative years, you, you know, you kind of, you, we all kind of like gather around, mm. you know, particular sounds. So 
And, yeah, and sometimes to identify with difference as opposed to identify with commonality. Exactly. So it's yeah. complex, especially exactly. when you're trying to construct your your identity. You know, it's like, mm. what's what's interesting is if you, the debates about why we have music. You know, why does human why do humans make it? And what's the evolutionary purpose of this, mm. or mm. just a pleasure thing? And one of the debates often comes back to it's about socialization. Mm. It's about working as a communal group. Mm-hmm. And of course, why human beings have been very very successful and have populated the planet is because we work together mm. and so socialization is, is yeah, a, a, what music allows us to do well i mean i'm being yeah. facetious yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i mean it's very hard in these times not to, to not agree with you but actually if you look at look at just a sort of music as distances yeah <laughs> in a longer term viewpoint of our success as a as a, as a as a species, socialization mm. and, and work is a group mm. really important, and music yes. really plays a bedrock role in that. Yeah. So we need some good music to solve Brexit then. Yeah, yeah music is sure. a healing force. I mean, I, I still very much believe that. Like, I see it's it's almost for me on a personal level, it's medicinal. I believe like it it can shift people who are open to it on that level, like mm. or even on a cellular level. Maybe a year ago, I was in uh, Johannesburg and I did uh, my first sound bath. Mm. And uh, I want to do one of these. Yeah, they're really incredible, mm. and like you know, again, it 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 was used in a in a medicinal way. Um, if it it kind of um, conjures up feeling of feelings of being back in the womb mm. as well. Um, so I was. It, it felt well. Essentially, you're in what almost feels like a waterbed, right? So you kind of like first. You're go, lying down. You're lying mm. down. Mm. You there's a some sort of a motor underneath where you kind of you, you know you sit in this kind of like thing that feels like a waterbed and then the motor kind of like pulls you down and you you get this sense of like just you feel like you're floating and, um, and then there was like certain the, the woman who was administ- administering this kind of like process mm. she would play certain music and like had a gong that she was playing at different kind of like tones and it just kind of just takes you or took me into a different realm completely there was a lot of like playing with um uh sound on a vibrational level mm-hmm. also the different kind frequencies, of not frequencies language yeah, or, not language or language yeah, yeah. kind of ambient sort of yeah um, thank you that's a perfect term it was very ambient yeah i mean there's, there's a lot of interest at the moment about music as a medicine and mm-hmm. what, what role it can play and uh, yeah quite a few research projects looking at how we can use it, partly yeah, because it, it, in, unless you're going to do, you know, unless you're going to use it for torture, mostly if you <laughs> or or crowd control, yeah, yeah, which oh, yeah. again yeah. is another, you know, yeah. it's like so disagreeable. Trevor was talking about that, yeah, um, crowd but, dispersal in the right. particular frequencies mm. that. Are wow. Used. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's two approaches yeah. to crowd dispersal if you want to do them. I mean, the first one is to, <laughs> if you want to get. I mean, it's often targeted at. Teenagers, and and so there's an interesting thing about whether it's fair to do this. To I teenagers. don't think it's fair. So the first one is to play high frequencies that people of my age won't be able to hear, and it's a high pitched tone. So unfair. And that, and then the device, which is called the mosquito device, is very controversial because why should you be sort of playing this at teenagers? Um, mm. And the other one is the sort of, sort of the naffness approach, which is, <laughs> which is you know, so you'll find some tube stations in London will play classical music, right? Uh, I didn't know that's why they play classical music. I no, thought that they just liked classical music. No, it's, no. It's just, they want to get rid of the, the kids. My, my favourite story is actually from Australia, where they played Barry Manilow to try and get rid of people, teenagers from a particular area, and Barry Manilow objected to having his music <laughs> used for this. What an insult. Yeah, and when, you, when he said, what, what teenagers liked it? 
which I think was being optimistic, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> Jenny, planning to use any Barry Manilow in any future? Look, pieces? you never know. <laughs> never know. You never Don't know. go there. <laughs> Ironically, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's also but, interesting, that assumption, too. Mm. Because as a young person, I really enjoyed classical music. Yeah. I enjoyed hip-hop. I enjoyed jazz. I enjoyed pop. I enjoyed so many different types of music. So it's interesting how, again, depending on how you're using the sound or the music contextually, dictates your relationship to it right so it's interesting how there has been a decision by somebody or some organization that <laughs> this sound will be used in this way and then mm. it automatically places it, the sound in that as it it places that it that way but it's not a thousand percent secure as you yeah, as you say yeah. some adolescents may like classical right music, you know but maybe not the kind of classical. young people who would <laughs> necessarily have other disruptive, quote-unquote, <laughs> behaviors. And, but it's interesting, this idea that, yes, the sound is there not for enjoyment, mm. but for alienation or mm. irritation. I think it's really kind of like, whoa, really? Is that? It's, it's almost like, it reminds me also of kind of studies of like Muzak and, and, and yeah, modes Muzak. of conditioning yeah. to encourage you to Consumerism move on, to encourage you to yeah. shop, to encourage yeah. you. Yeah. Like, I'm interested in what you were yeah. saying about it being a medicine as well. What, what, mm. There's just research into using music yeah. as a... Well, we all know that if we put an, a piece of music on, it can make us feel better, you mm. know, so, you know, it activates the reward centers of the brain. Mm. So, you know, just as a very simple self-medication process mm -hmm. for say... If you're feeling a bit low, mm -hmm. using some music, or if you're, you know, if you're in pain, maybe using a bit of music might help mask some of it. Mm -hmm. These are the kind of studies that are happening, um, and looking into the effect. What they find is it's very individual. So we were talking mm. about earlier on about torture. It's about which piece of music right. you choose. So mm -hmm. one of the, you know, normally it's not a question you go in and, and they just play you nice whale music because you mm. might find that irritating. <laughs> the bit of music that you will connect with. Right. Um, I was going to say, how do they conduct these studies? They put you in a room and they play some great music and they say how do you feel and you say good well <laughs> well uh, our studies show that uh, well you you do it with good you, music makes you feel good, good. Music makes you feel good. <laughs> yeah i said they're quite hard to quite hard to do but what you can actually do is measure things you know you should measure stress hormones oh, for example okay so you could do something like stress people so you go, yeah to give them a really hard mental arithmetic task and they'll get all stressed you measure their stress is high and then you play music mm. for a couple of minutes and you try different tracks and you might play mm. playing white noise and silence as a control mm. against it mm. and you see if the stress levels of the people listening to the music music yeah. actually goes down quicker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a, that's kind of a process you can do. But as I say, often when they do these studies, they have to get people to bring their own music in. Mm. Because... If what, you, uh, what kind of impact can it have? Stress levels, sure. Can it like reduce inflammation, or is there, is there any mm. sort of? Mm. Can it cure cancer? No, no. And I think <laughs> this is what you could be careful of. If you're feeling depressed, go to your doctor. I, you know, don't just think that music is going to solve it for you. Um, but yeah, but there is a thought that, and if mm. you read sort of like nice guidelines, you know, the people who do all the guidelines for health, you know, quite, quite often you read about the music and they say, well, try it because it won't do you any harm. And that's right. One thing about music as a medicine. It's provided you don't play it so loud it damages your hearing. Mm. It's not going to do any harm to use it. Mm. So mm. there's lots of interest in using it in, say, care home situations mm -hmm. and places right. like that. Because if it doesn't work, you stop doing it. But you yeah, haven't, yeah. it's not like you're taking the drug that then has a side effect that right. creates lots of mm. problems. So it's it's a kind of like a free try, really. It's mm. interesting, the, 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 the kind of... Um, 
uh, use of music on a medicinal level, it starts to make me think about like spiritual jazz. It also makes me think about genres like gospel music. Mm. Yeah. How's that? How that is used as a form yeah. of healing mm-hmm. for certain groups. You know, mm. it's interesting. I had a very uh, spiritual ex-girlfriend who sent me to see this quack who got two tuning forks and went around me and then said, you're fine for cancer. (laughs) (laughs) So it can be quite dangerous in certain certain scenarios. Oh, wow. wow. But but did you get cancer in the next moment? No, I didn't. (laughs) It was absolutely absolutely correct. (laughs) Ever seen you lose (laughs) thing? And it only lasted so many years. So So, well, thanks, everyone. That was very welcome. Really nice to have you. And thank you for uh, talking about sound in art. Maybe we could put some music on here which will disperse us. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. What what between us would we all dislike? Yeah. What what would disperse you, Tony? Um, What music would disperse you immediately? That's a good question. And what music would solve Brexit? Oh, gosh. What would disperse me? Thrash metal? Jabber music would disperse me. Okay. I think like okay. noise. Okay. You know when you say noise music, like hardcore, like right. jabber music. Okay. Is that like Baby w- wall of noise? Huh? Baby Shark? Yeah. Oh, I think Baby Shark is cute. Uh, uh, <laughs> some really sort of awful kids I, music. I just have oh, okay. awful kids music. Yeah, I think really that would simplistic. actually do it. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. I, mm. For instance, you know, part of the playlist and literature are the theme from Sesame Street and yeah. I love you, you love me. Yeah, Barney. Barney. <laughs> so I think that. Yeah, yeah. The Barney auto-tuned maybe nowadays, oh, just to add God, to Barney the particular. I think you've got it. You've got me now. <laughs> Isn't it so interesting, this relationship between taking something very sweet and using it in a very mm. dark way, how mm. that just transforms the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. How I mean, how here in Barney, I love you, you love me, we're happy family. Like how that just becomes so dark. Yeah. When in <laughs> another context. You know this is... <laughs> like, I know you don't love me. Right. I know... Yeah. <laughs> Teletubbies is the soundtrack to my nightmares. Okay. Oh my god, yeah, I can imagine that. This podcast is brought to you by Malevich, the online art trading platform built on blockchain technology. Visit us at malevich.io and be part of the art revolution.